You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. That's more like it, Greg. This is my music, Jamie. I do like the boy bands. No. No. Honestly, because... (laughs) Have you ever tried to sing uh, Def Leppard songs? I don't don't know. Probably at some (laughs) point when I've had a few beers in me. But do you actually sing the words or you just kind of mumble along? Yeah. I say that that not because of the words. Because generally speaking, you don't have a clue what they're saying um if i had i'd like to do like a karaoke version like you know how apple music now when you play a song they actually have the karaoke uh streaming for you i'd like to go through some of their songs because pour some sugar on me i can't even remember what it is but it's not what you think it is in your head so no, <laughs> it's no. uh, i uh, i saw them live a few years ago uh rogers uh rogers arena vancouver no opening act, just 90 minutes of all their hits, like not trying to play anything new. I don't know if they have anything new, but it's just 90 hits of them rocking out. It was a fantastic concert. It's, uh, yeah, me and my 80s rock. I love it. <laughs> Good for them, not playing anything new. Just right? giving exactly. people what they want. Yeah. Exactly. All these bands that go, oh, let's try something new. No, no, just play the hits that everyone's here for. Um, coming up at the bottom of the hour, we're going to talk a little hockey because we're going to be joined by golden knights head coach and assistant coach for team canada at the beijing gangs that's pete DeBoer. that's coming up bottom of the hour we're going to talk a little bit of football now jamie because uh with all due respect to the hall of fame game and the dallas cowboys and the pittsburgh steelers full slate of preseason games week one in the nfl tonight again preseason not actual nfl games tonight washington at new england and pittsburgh at philadelphia are you going to be tuning in I will, um, I'll, I'll put them on at some point. I'm not going to okay. sit down beginning to end, you know, walk, get my <laughs> notebook out and take notes on it or anything, but I'll have it on at some point for sure. Well, the one note that we should talk about is the fact that it does sound like New England's going to have both Mac Jones and Cam Newton at some point in this game. So you'll get to see the rookie Mac Jones from Alabama, see what he can do. Other than that, yeah, not really too much intriguing to me in these preseason games. But, I mean, it is what it is and uh, for the coaches and for our next guest, Mike Jones with USA Today. Uh, I'm sure he's going to be tuned in. Not too sure where we're going to talk to him from today. He's been traveling around training camp, Jamie. For him, it's probably pretty nice to actually get back at training camp. There's fans there watching things it feels almost normal yes very 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 close to normal and you know we, we talked about that a little bit with Danny Austin earlier in the show you how heard how excited he is to be back covering the CFL in person you know even if it's not quite normal but it's close enough and you know I'm sure most people fall covering NFL teams feel very very similarly I wanted to get this one in from the inbox because it doesn't have to do with the NFL, but Buffalo Bill uh, sent us a text after our interview with Julia Grosso saying, by the way, I recorded the shootout. IOC not blocking me out. (laughs) LOL. I will say this, Buffalo Bill. First of all, don't upload it to the internet because that could be a problem for you. But the, it is the IOC. They might find a way of <laughs> trying to block you out. Track you down. We, we know how they do, they know how particular they are with their content and not watching it again. But uh, it's good to have that on the PVR just to have it go back. Yeah. And if you need a smile and want to watch Canada win gold medal again, it's, uh, it's something nice to have. Uh, but we are going to talk some NFL football, preseason NFL football with Mike Jones now from USA Today. Mike, good afternoon. Good morning. How are you? you doing today i'm doing well how are you all doing we're doing pretty good things where are we catching you at right now um i am home today i was in green bay earlier this week and then i'll be in baltimore for the raven saints game um on saturday perfect how has it been traveling to training camps uh this year it's kind of like normal there's fans there at most of them like what's it been this this year versus last year 
Yeah, well, last year I didn't go anywhere uh, because of all the COVID mess. Um, so this year it's been nice to get back out in front of guys. There's still restrictions. You're not able to uh, just grab guys off the field and talk to as many as you want, but you're still able to set up some interviews. Um, you know, they let us in there um, as long as, you know, you're vaccinated and um, have the negative tests and have your mask. So it, it's still, you can tell it's not quite uh, back to normal, but I will take this over just covering everything off of Zoom any day. Mike, I think the big league-wide storyline so far in training camp has obviously been, you know, the issue of COVID and vaccinations and, and different restrictions and rules that the NFL is putting in place to try to ensure they don't have to move or cancel any games, to, you know, to try to minimize the disruptions as much as they can. Overall, what do you make of how the league has handled that issue so far going into this new season? Well, I mean, they're, they're doing everything they possibly can. you got to remember this is a business, and, you know, they lost a lot of money last year um, with not having fans in the stands. And if you're having to reschedule games, you know, some of those were in primetime TV spots and um, had to, you know, reschedule them, and so they lost out on some of that. They don't want that to happen again. Um, so they're doing everything they can to, um, you know, make it clear to the players that, look, get vaccinated, take care of yourself, take care of your teammates. Um, and, you know, for the most part, guys are going along. There's still some guys who are hesitant of it, um, but that's, like, much reflective of, you know, society and uh, yeah. the states here. Um, you know, and we'll see how it plays out. Um, but for now, they haven't had any outbreaks um, in organizations interrupting training camp. Uh, there hasn't been any, um, you know, wide transmissions. So it seems like they're doing everything, but right now, you know, it's still early. We don't know. Once these teams start traveling and things like that um, is when the real test is going to be coming. And, and you've had the chance to travel to a couple of different training camps so far. And, and, you know, as you said, it's not quite the same where you're having as many casual conversations with, with players and coaches. But from the guys you have been able to speak to, and whether it is players, coaches, executives, you know, what's your sense of how – the, the you know the players and, and, and the coaches in the NFL how do they feel about how the league is trying to handle the issue um, I think for the most part they they feel good about it there are some you know who don't like that they feel like they were forced to get the vaccine um, had some concerns about it but know that hey this is the only way uh, to do my job the best way um, you know so there you have some like that but the majority of these guys have been vaccinated and so they're doing whatever they can. Uh, to try to stay healthy, to try to avoid uh, putting their teams at risk. Um, you know, I think they understand uh, what's at stake. And, you know, as the season continues to um, approach, I think those numbers, they're, they're getting up there. They're not at 100% yet. Um, they're in the low 90s. Uh, so I think those numbers are going to continue to go up. We're speaking with Mike Jones from USA Today. You can find him on Twitter at by Mike Jones. Mike, you just mentioned in your latest story that you have up on usatoday.com is the fact that you went to Packers training camp. And the headline says all the talk surrounding the Packers has been on Aaron Rodgers. But the real key figure could be Matt LaFleur, their head coach. What does the relationship look like between Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers? And what do you mean by Matt LaFleur could be the key to this? Um, they have a very good relationship. Even, you know, throughout this offseason, we rarely heard from Aaron Rodgers. But, um, you know, the, the one time when he did the interview with Kenny Mayne on ESPN, um, he did express, you know, his, his um, concerns about the front office, but was quick to point out that he appreciates the coaching staff. 
um, LaFleur and his assistants and his teammates. And then when he came back and he kind of had that tell-all press conference, he again made it clear that he really um, respects and values LaFleur. So they've had a good relationship. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot hanging over this team. They know that, look, this is probably their best chance to win a Super Bowl uh, for some time if this is indeed Aaron Rodgers' uh, final season. So LaFleur has to keep these guys focused, make sure that that pressure does not get to them, keep them united um, so there's no uh, division within that locker room. Um, and then just he has them focusing, you know, just a day at a time, a step at a time, and not all of the pressure that is actually on this team to win. The expectation is, I mean, they've been to the NFC Championship game the last two years. They're going to be the favorite, favorite coming out of the NFC to go to the Super Bowl. It's obviously a favorite within that division. But looking at that division a little bit more, Another big story or storyline is is the round the quarterback position with the Chicago Bears and Justin Fields or Andy Dalton. How do you see that playing out? Um, I think early on they will um, stick with Andy Dalton. I think that Matt Nagy he was in Kansas City when they had drafted Patrick Mahomes and they basically kept him on the bench for most of that year and they felt like that was the best thing for his development. I think he would like to do that with Justin Fields. But, you know, talking to people, Justin Fields is doing very well in training camp um, and I think it's a matter of time before he forces his way onto the field. It could be, you know, in certain packages and things like that. Uh, but eventually by the time the year is over, he very well could be the full-time starter there. We'll see. But for now, they want to give him as much chance to develop um, you know, at a gradual pace, not thrust him in there. Uh, because right now, it is training camp. You're going against um, your own teammates. You're not going against defenses that are out there to destroy you. Um, so I think they're, they'll be patient for as long as they can. Just sticking in the NFC North again quickly, Mike, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the Detroit Lions and Dan Campbell specifically, because he's certainly, you know, he's got a lot of attention for his press conferences and it, it's great for us on radio because he's given us sound bites that we can replay and have some fun with. But I also look at that team, you know, they make the trade, they send Matt Stafford out of town, Jared Goff is there now. What do you make of where that Lions team is at? And, you know, how confident are you that, that Dan Campbell is, is the right person for the job there? It's still super early. It's really hard to tell. Talking to people, it's hard to get a grasp on where uh, things are there. And a lot of people just, you know, the jury is still very much out. Um, you know, they, they've been disappointing for so long. Uh, they definitely feel like Campbell is um, a, a strong, you know, vocal leader. Um, when he was a position coach, he had a lot of respect. Now it's different when you're the whole head coach, but it sounds like guys are buying in. But again, they, you know, they, they're having to start over at a lot of, you know, you know, at their most important uh, position. Their line, um, you know, has been suspect for a while now. Uh, we'll see what Jared Goff is able to do. They do have young uh, weapons that they've given him, um, and their defense uh, is also, you know, they're young. They have some pieces. Uh, but I think that this is going to be a year where um, they very well could, could struggle a little bit just as, you know, new coaching staff um, needing to continue to upgrade that roster. Uh, you know, it, they're going to be intriguing for sure, but uh, it's just hard to tell what exactly their potential and what the expectations should be in this first year. 
and I don't know about you, Mike, but when I look at the Detroit Lions, and I know it's been a few years, but I still, when I look at the situation they're in, I still find myself asking, why did you move on from Jim Caldwell again? It, it seems like mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. move was confusing at the time, yeah. and it, it doesn't look better in retrospect either. No, it doesn't, because they were building something there, and I think that, you know, it just is indicative of the poor decision-making that has continued to plague this organization and why they struggle um, like they do. Um, you know, you had a guy who had to go in the right direction, and, you know, they're, they're still paying for it now. We're talking with uh, Mike Jones from USA Today. Mike, switching to the... NFC West, uh, one of the divisions, obviously, we follow a lot out here in the Lower Mainland because of the Seattle Seahawks and our closeness to them. Um, do you have a harder time picking a top team in this division as we do out here? You know, I, I think that it is a very competitive division. I would have to give a little bit of an edge to the 49ers and then to the Seahawks. Um, I know that the Rams, you know, they've got a talented defense. They've got a bright young coach on offense. Um, I, their line concerns me a little bit. Their left tackle, Andrew Whitworth, is, is you know really up there in age. Uh, the depth of the line, I don't think, is great. Um, you know, Stafford's going to be you know working his way, learning this offense and everything. And I'm wondering, you know, is, are they going to be able to protect him? That's going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the 49ers are healthy again after an injury plague last season. Um, they look like they should be able to jump back into the ranks of the contenders. And I think that the Seahawks with Russell Wilson, they got things kind of quieted down there. They have a new offensive coordinator. And I think that this offense that they're going to run is going to be similar to what we saw from the Rams, from the 49ers, because uh, Shane Waldron was the assistant there to Sean McVay. But they're going to run the football. They're going to put their quarterback in positions where um, he can use his legs, his mobility, his rollouts, the bootlegs, and things like that. So um, I, I think that we're going to see um, a good year from the Seahawks there. That division definitely is going to be a dogfight. Can't forget about the Cardinals. Um, mm. But, you know, it's, you know they, it's, it's really, really competitive division. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the Arizona Cardinals because we talk about it could be one of three teams that comes out in tops in this division, unlikely to be the Cardinals. But is this a year, how important of this season is it for Cliff Kingsbury, not necessarily with Kyler Murray, but just specifically for job security with himself? Um, I think that he, it is um, a big year for him because so far he has not shown um, you know, that he is the guy. Um, they had a promising start last year, really finished disappointing, um, you know, to, to finish the season. He, this is not, you know, what they, you know, thought they were getting. They thought they were going to be able to turn this thing around quickly. Here we are going to year three, wondering, okay, can they get a winning season? Uh, so, um, you know, they've got to, I'm not saying they have to make the playoffs, but they have to be in the mix, in contention. Um, he's got to continue to help Kyler Murray grow. Um, you know, and and really that team as a whole, they've, you know, invested in their defense. They've got the pieces on offense. Okay, so what is going to be the difference maker? And I think that it's come down to uh, Kingsbury, his leadership, his play calling. 
And you mentioned there one of the things that Kingsbury has to do is help Kyler Murray continue to grow, you know, going into his third year in the NFL. And, and it's interesting because you look at that offense and, okay, Kyler Murray is such a dynamic talent. They have DeAndre Hopkins there. Cliff Kingsbury made his reputation as, a, as an offensive mind in college. You expect it to be, I think, a little more explosive than it was. What do you think needs to change on offense, one, both just to be more productive, but also specifically, as you say, to help Kyler Murray continue to grow in a quarterback, as a quarterback? Well, I think you have to be more balanced. You know, you see, you know, the, the, the air raid and the spreads, all those offenses in college. But in the NFL, you still do have to be able to run the football. You need balance. Um, that eases pressure on your quarterback. Um, you know, there are these really dominant edge rushers that can pin back their ears and come after your quarterback. You have to find a way to keep them off balance. And so I think that uh, that's something that, that Cliff Kingsbury is, um, you know, you would hope is starting to learn and has got to uh, look at his uh, his playbook and uh, kind of, you know, revise some things there. If they can be balanced on offense, um, you know, then that certainly should help them. Um, Kyler Murray, great young player. But again, they've got to find a way to make life a little easier for him. Back to the Seahawks just for a second here, Mike. Do you, if, if you were a Seahawks fan or, or should Seahawks fans be at all concerned, do you think, about the Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown contract situations? I know they're at camp, but they're, they're waiting to get new deals before they start participating. Do you expect both of those things to be resolved before week one of the season? You would certainly hope so. Um, these are two of your most important players. And look, Russell Wilson spoke out um, on behalf of Brown saying they've got to get that taken care of. Um, so you would hope, you know, they've got time. Um, these are guys that are, are veterans, they're experienced, they know the system. Uh, but, you know, between now and, you know, we got what, three weeks after this before the start of the season, uh, you really would like to get that done so it doesn't hang over them. It's not going into the season um, and, and causing, um, you know, any fractures or anything like that within that locker room, within the organization. In conversation with Mike Jones from USA Today for a few more moments here on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Mike, I want to ask you your feelings or your thoughts on the fact that will Deshaun Watson play this season for the Houston Texans or for any other club for that matter? That is the million-dollar question. I, I really don't know. This is like such an unusual situation, not anything that anybody has seen before. Um, you know, the Texans, you know, he's there. So he doesn't get fined. Um, he's not taking part in team stuff because they don't want him to get injured. But it doesn't sound like they're ask, lowering their asking price. And right now, because this investigation remains ongoing and because the NFL, um, really they have stated that they can't put him on an exempt list if there are not any charges. And, um, you know, they have not been able to have access to all the information. So this thing's mm-hmm. going to linger. But teams aren't going to want to cough up three first-round picks and two second-round picks and a veteran to acquire him if they don't know if he's going to be on the field this year. Um, you know, w- nobody knows when this thing is going to be resolved. I would be surprised if he ever does play down again for the Houston Texans. Um, you know, and we still just don't know. Is his investigation going to be resolved and then he's suspended for eight games? Is it going to be that he's suspended for a whole season? There's so many questions, and that's why, you know, nobody really has a real good understanding of how this is going to play out. And that's why he's still in Houston rather than with another team right now. 
Mike, one more question from myself. We all know the talent in the quarterbacks that went in this draft, five of them. Uh, we're going to see Mac Jones, I believe, a little bit tonight in the Patriots preseason game. If you look into your crystal ball, do you think there's a path that at some point this season all five of those rookie quarterbacks are starting at the same time? Um, I, I do think that there is a possibility, definitely late in the year. It just kind of depends on how things played out. But if you look at each one of those situations, there isn't a – you know, a, a real, I mean, outside of, you know, maybe um, with uh, with San Francisco, and I guess you could say Chicago a little bit, but they're, they're shaky quarterback positions, um, even with the veterans there. Even with San Francisco, Jimmy Garoppolo took them to the Super Bowl, but he has been hurt a lot. So you don't know about his durability. So I think, you know, Cam Newton up there in New England, I think he can build on last year. It was a difficult year uh, coming in with no training camp, and uh, he had COVID that kind of derailed him there. Uh, and then, you know, he started getting back on track but never was able to be quite the impact player that they wanted or expected. Uh, but, you know, if he continues to play up and down and they're midway through the season, they're not in contention, then I could see them pulling the plug and going with Mac Jones as well. So there's a chance that all of these young guys could be on the field uh, late in the year. I think that, um, you know, Trey Lance is a situation where they want to keep him on the bench. Uh, they want to give him time. But – we could see him in different packages. I think Kyle Shanahan has kind of hinted. Uh, so we're going to see these guys, I think, you know, at some point for sure. It's exciting to think about. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate the insight. Uh, enjoy the rest of training camp. Enjoy the preseason game in between the Saints and the Ravens this weekend. And uh, we'll, t- we'll touch base soon. All right. Thanks, you. Have a good one. Yeah, thank you. That is Mike Jones with USA Today. Again, you can find his work at usatoday.com. You can find him on Twitter at ByMikeJones. Uh, Jamie, he mentioned the fact that he talked to, went to training camp and talked to Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers and did a piece on on that dynamic because that's that's one of the interesting ones. We don't talk about the whole – we talk about the whole Aaron Rodgers does he want to be there, but – from what we've heard, yes, he does have a very good relationship with Matt LaFleur since he's been there, but there was always the, oh, you know, first-year head coach when he first got there, the play-calling issues. Then there was the Aaron Rodgers. Well, you're going to have to ask who made that call for them to kick the field goal versus going for it in the playoff games. So it will be interesting to see if Matt LaFleur as a third-year head coach can keep this team together if things go south, or at least uh, in the standings. But that relationship is so important, right? Because once the season starts, you can kind of forget about your relationship with your general manager or your executive a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you're, day to day, you're talking to your head coach and you're talking to his assistants and his coordinators. So if you're a Packers fan, that at least gives you some hope that hopefully the drama will kind of die out once the season starts because at least Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur get along and they have that mutual respect. You hope that that carries the day in Green Bay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's also a piece there on Cleveland Brown star Miles Garrett. Uh, he's looking to be back to his dominant ways. We forget too. He was a he was affected by COVID last year, Jamie, yep. and he really talked about the fact that getting back on the field that first game back, he was like, "Oh my god, I like I feel like I'm sucking wind from 
like through the entire game and I can't play the way that he that I can and so looking at that situation with Cleveland they really need him to get back to being that dominant uh, defensive lineman that he has been in the past I expect he will be as well but it will be it will be interesting to see how some of these athletes do perform this year um, because we do know how COVID affected them last year Lamar Jackson we'll see how two boats with COVID affects him moving forward but uh, yeah there's a lot of storylines going on in the NFL we're going to talk a little hockey next because I'm really excited about this. We have a great guest lineup today. What a great guest lineup that Raja, our producer, has set up for us. We're going to speak to Pete DeBoer, head coach of the Golden Knights, also assistant coach for Team Canada at the Beijing Games. That is coming up next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie, our next guest will know this song pretty well. Apparently this is the Vegas Golden Knights goal song that Greg has. uh, All right. Select today. I, I I have no idea. <laughs> Personally, when you watch on TV, the goal songs don't always translate unless it's a team that you cheer for. Yeah. So they get drowned I, out a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially from the announcers talking. I will say this before we get to our next guest, Pete DeBoer, head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights and assistant coach for Team Canada at the Beijing Olympics, or at least hopefully, uh, when NHL players are finally announced that they're going to be going to the Olympic Games. It's, that's on my bucket list, like heading to, to Vegas to see a game down there. I don't know if you've seen one. I know early on in Sportsnet 50, 650's creation, they definitely had some, I think, uh, road trips when the Canucks yep. were playing down there. I'm. I, it's one of the things where I'm like, yeah, that's definitely something that I... I, I want to do. Yeah, Scotty, I believe, got to go for work and, and see a game down in Vegas. I, I was just a lowly uh, a lowly grunt at that time. I mean, I still am, really, so I was not involved in that. Okay, so we've got a road trip to go to Seattle to see the Jays play next year. We've got a road trip to go to Vegas to see the Golden Knights play uh, this season. But we're joined now by Vegas Golden Knights head coach Pete DeBoer and assistant coach for Team Canada at the upcoming Beijing Games, or at least we hope so. Uh, Pete, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. How are you guys? We're great, thank you. Where are we catching you on your summer vacation? Are you at a summer home in Canada? Are you still in Vegas? Where are you right now? Uh, I typically uh, go to my cottage in Ontario, but uh, with uh, with everything going on in Canada and uh, and the quarantines and things, I, I I've spent the summer in Vegas. I'm planning on on going back. Uh, I believe they just opened open the border up if you're vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to getting back to Ontario here for a week or two in uh, late August. How has the summer been for, for you so far? I mean, I know it's been a crazy couple of seasons. You've had some long runs with the Golden Knights, and we'll get into that a little bit later in this conversation. But are you able to take some time away and take some time off, even if it is staying in Vegas? Well, it's been hot. <laughs> you, haven't, you, haven't, you haven't spent a summer uh, uh, until you spent a summer in Vegas. I think I golfed the other day. It was 115 degrees. So uh, it's a dry heat, but uh, it's still that's still pretty hot. Um, you know what? You, you do you do get time away, but you don't you don't get the same type of ability to turn it off like you do when you when you leave and go to the lake and you have no cell phone right. service. <laughs> so. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, it, it has been a really interesting two seasons for me. Uh, I, I essentially uh, got hired just before uh, we had the pandemic and shut down and then, you know, coached in the bubble for that playoff run and then, you know, the entire condensed schedule and playoffs last year. 
So, so really two full seasons, it feels like in the last 18 months, including the bubble experience. So it's been, uh, it's been interesting. It's been enjoyable. We, we won a lot of games and, you know, obviously had some disappointments in the conference finals both years, but, but it's been uh, enjoyable. I really like the group. Pete, we'll get back to Vegas uh, in a little bit, but we do want to talk to you about the fact that uh, you have been named as an assistant coach for Team Canada at the upcoming Beijing Games. How does this process work? Did you get a call from Doug Armstrong? Did you get a call from John Cooper? How does this all go down? Uh, You know what? I got a call from John Cooper first, and uh, he just uh, informed me that he had been named the head coach of the team, and uh, you know, I was one of the guys that uh, he was interested in adding to his staff, and um, you know, would I consider that? And it took all of about two seconds to <laughs> to say yes. Uh, I got involved with uh, Hockey Canada 25 years ago when when Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe were on uh, Canada's under 18 team, and we were in Nelson, BC for for the tournament. So. It uh, feels like forever, um, but anytime Canada calls, uh, I've jumped at the opportunity over the years. It's been some of my best coaching experiences, and um, I, I got a follow-up, obviously, from Doug Armstrong and and the rest of uh, Ron Francis and the rest of the management team, but great staff, uh, best players in the world, and just excited to go. Well, hey, Marlowe and Thornton were both still playing in the NHL last year, so it can't have been that long ago that they were at the U18 level. That's incredible. That must have been quite the team. I mean, as you said, you've had the opportunity before to be involved with Hockey Canada. I know at the World Juniors and the World Championships as well. What does it mean for you to get the opportunity to represent uh, your country at the Olympics, potentially? Well, that's the peak of the mountain, right? Um, You know, I've, I've done World Junior... Uh, I've done world championships and won gold medals in, in both those tournaments at different points, but but the Olympics is, is obviously the peak of the mountain. I mean, that's uh, you know one, uh, it's not a yearly event, and and two, uh, um, you know, to be able to to say you were part of a, a, a Canadian Olympic team, uh, you know, is something that uh, hopefully my kids and grandkids and great grandkids will be. Uh, you know, take pride in. So, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to put into words, but uh, there's a reason that, that, you know, everybody that goes gets the Olympic ring, rings tattooed on, on themselves because it, it, it's such a great honor. Uh, I'm not sure if you've, you've had these kinds of conversations yet with John Cooper or Doug Armstrong, but, you know, it's always fa- we always focus on the player side of things. And, oh, man, there's, there's so many great players. You know, this guy is going to be on the fourth line. Can you believe it? But it's the same thing from a coaching perspective, right? There's an incredible uh, amount of talent that's going to be behind the bench. How do you see your role as an assistant coach for developing in this group? Yeah, well, I think that's to be determined. We've had some initial discussions, but the great thing, and I think what Hockey Canada does better than any program in the world, is uh, players, coaches, management, you know, there's an expectation. You check your ego at the door and you roll up your sleeves and you you take on whatever role uh, they delegate to you and you do it to the best of your ability. And, And I think that's been the case with Hockey Canada uh, forever and uh, you know that's the expectation when you walk in the door so 
whatever role I played, um, every time I've gone and worked with a national team, it's been something different. Um, it's a great professional development opportunity for a coach. You, you get to learn from other great coaches over the years. I've got to work with Ken Hitchcock and Todd McClelland and, uh, you know, on and on, uh, you know, the, the list is as long as your arm and, and you always come out better than when you went in. Well, I wanted to ask you about that professional development opportunity because, you know, in this case, it's John Cooper as the head coach, yourself, Barry Trotz, and Bruce Cassidy as the assistants. A, a lot of acumen, a lot of NHL experience, a lot of NHL success there. How exciting is that opportunity for you, as you say, to kind of pick the brains and work alongside other coaches of, of that talent? Well, that, that's that's the, your, that, that's the best part of the job, you know. Other than obviously winning and representing your country and and the pride you take and all that, uh, you you always come out of those tournaments a better coach, and and you're not only getting, uh, you know what what our staff has, you're inheriting you know what Mike Babcock and his staff did the the last time they won Olympic gold and. Uh, you know, the Olympic teams prior to that, that information's all passed along. So it's a, it's a Bible, so to speak, of, of hockey knowledge. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how I can make myself better. We're talking with Pete DeBoer, head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights and assistant coach for Team Canada at the upcoming Beijing Winter Games, which are actually just seven months away, Pete, if you can actually believe it. Um, the expectation is uh, reports out there that we should have an answer 100% by the end of August. That's what Bill Daly told ESPN on if players are going to go. We have seen the restrictions that were in place in Tokyo for the athletes. We understand that COVID is not going to go away by February and there will be restrictions, or at least we're told, um, in Beijing. Do you think there might be any hesitancy from the players or when it comes to, okay, it's only two-and-a-half, three-week commitment, it doesn't really matter if I'm going to put Team Canada's crest on my jersey. You know what? It's the latter. I'm amazed at how excited the players are to go. I have not heard one rumble uh, about uh, uh, COVID or restrictions or, you know, that this Olympics might be different than other Olympics. Um, You could see in... uh, in their negotiations, the Players Association with the NHL in the last round, how important the Olympics was to them. Uh, you know, that was front and center and a constant talking point. And that was coming from the players. They, they were adamant they wanted to be involved. They, they didn't get an opportunity to, uh, and it got taken away from them after having involvement for a while, and they, and they wanted it back. It's a special opportunity. So... Um, you know, I, I think whatever it looks like, uh, you, you've got a, an excited group of Canadian players and, and management and coaches ready to go and, and deal with whatever they throw at us. You mentioned uh, earlier, Pete, that, you know, it's these are the best players in the world for Team Canada. And I think a lot of people think, well, it could be easy coaching all this talent because it is the best players in the world uh, playing for one team, but is it one of the challenges trying to get players that maybe are top line center or top line winger on their NHL team to buy into a different role in this team candidate for success? Well, for sure. You know, when, when you put a talented group like that together, um, I'm not going to say it's not easy to coach, but um, you know, 
and again, this goes back to the the expectation that Hockey Canada has created for players since day one, and and you know, the, the benefit we have of that is all our players have come up through under 18 and world juniors and world championships. Sidney Crosby played them on our world junior team the year I went with Brent Sutter. So, you know, th- those guys understand that when they show up at this tournament, uh, whatever role you're given, you, you embrace it and, and, and play it to the best of your abilities with pride. And, and again, I, you know, I, you know, not, not to toot hockey Canada's horn, but, but they've created that and that makes it easy from a coaching perspective. And, uh, you know, I don't know where else you would want to be, but standing behind the bench with that type of talent uh, and, and that many committed guys. And, you know, one of the challenges always with Team Canada at any level is there's there's so much talent to choose from that it can be hard to make those decisions. And I know Doug Armstrong will be playing the leading role, but I'm sure he'll ask for input from the coaching staff. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you about specific players that might be in consideration, obviously, but just in general, I mean, have you thought about the, the strategy and the pr- uh, approach that you and the rest of the staff might want to take to assembling this roster? Oh, I, I think as soon as you, you're named to the staff, you start writing down line combinations and defense <laughs> pairs. I think that's just natural. And, uh, you know, you, you love listening to the debate. I mean, the, the country, uh, you know, it, 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 it's constant on, you know, who's going to play with Sidney Crosby and, you know, is, is Bergeron going to be on the team? And um, so, you know, that, that stuff's going to go on for the next six months. Um, you know, it, it's exciting. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's not as easy as just rolling out your 20 most skilled players, and it never has been. Um, you know, you've got roles and you've got positions and you've got, you know, left and right shot defensemen. Um, you know, obviously goaltending is a huge position. So there's a lot of decisions there to make. We've got an unbelievable management team, Ken Holland and, and Edmonton and Ron Francis and, you know, obviously Doug Armstrong and uh, Don and uh, Don Sweeney and uh, Boston. So, um, you know, those guys will put together uh, that ghost roster and, and put all those pieces of the puzzle together. And, and uh, you know, they've always been good about including the coaches' opinions in that. Well, Peter, I, I know I speak for myself and I think a lot of our listeners where we're doing the exact same thing, right? Penciling down line combinations. So I, I, I'll just say, if you do want to share with us, you know, your thoughts about who might look good uh, next to Connor McDavid at any point, feel free to do that. But uh, I also I want think, to ask you the, about... I think, I think the answer to that is anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. I think you're right about that. Especially anyone who's going to be on that roster. Yeah, they can probably yeah. keep up. You're very right about that. Uh, but we do want to ask about your, your regular season job as well with the Vegas Golden Knights. I think the biggest news around the team this offseason, of course, uh, is that Marc-Andre Fleury, no longer with the team, traded to Chicago. What kind of challenges does the departure of a veteran, a very reliable netminder for you, what kind of challenges is that going to pose for the team uh, in the upcoming season? Well, big challenge. He was our best player last year. He won the Vesna. Um, he was fantastic. Uh, at the same time, you see it with Tampa, uh, any of the cap teams, any of the teams challenging for the cup at the end of the day, all deal with roster turnover in the off season. Uh, the cap world just dictates that. And particularly the flat cap COVID world, um, you know, has, has had, had even a bigger impact on that. And, 
you know, you look at the the guys Tampa lost their, you know, their, their entire third line, plus a, a you know a handful of other guys. So I think I think you you'd go into the off season and the and the playoffs for that matter, knowing that this group's never going to be uh, together again, and there's going to be some changes, and uh, you know, tough decisions have to be made. So, um, you know, I think our management uh, weighed every option they had. In a perfect world, we would have loved to have kept Flower and and Leonard together again. They were the best goaltending tandem in the league this year, but just wasn't realistic and and we've got to move on and I'm excited about the group uh, we're going to have uh, coming on uh, and and, into training camp here in about three or four weeks. Peter, it's hard to argue with the talent on the roster for a team that's been to uh, two back-to-back Western Conference, or I guess conference last year, uh, finals with a chance to play for the Stanley Cup. But looking at your team, obviously the biggest change is Marc-Andre Fleury not being there. You also brought in Nolan Patrick and moved out Cody Glass. But when you obviously you look at this team and you think with the talent on this roster, you want to keep the band together and may, and have enough to push to make it past the Western Conference Final to the Stanley Cup this next year? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's the goal. Um, you know, and having said that, uh, it's a really hard league just to make the playoffs in. Uh, and and it's a really hard league to win a round in. Um, so, uh, you know, the fact that we've been to the Western Conference Finals two years in a row is something that uh, is a comp- an accomplishment in itself, but obviously not the, the final goal. So uh, I think we've kept the core of our group together. Uh, we've lost some, some good men from our dressing room and, and Fleury and Ryan Reeves over the summer. Uh, but... Uh, We've added, uh, we've used that uh, that cap savings. Nick Holden was another guy we lost to Ottawa, but we've used that that money savings and added some pieces and changed the the uh, uh, look of our team a little bit and the depth of our forward group. And so, as a coach, I'm excited about what what uh, what we have available to us here uh, this year. Are you looking forward to quote unquote normal season? Because we saw the bubble, we saw the only playing within the West Division last year, but now you're back to a normal Pacific Division. Arizona's out and Seattle's in as an expansion franchise. But are you kind of excited just to get back to the normality of an NHL season? I am. I think everybody is. Uh, it was so nice having fans in the stands uh, in the playoffs. Um, so I, I think for all those reasons, um, you know, when we started last year, we literally would check into a hotel, grab a, a box meal, and, and you'd sit in your room by yourself until you went went to the rink for the game. Um, you know, never mind all the protocols involved with uh, around the rink and traveling and things like that. So it, it was it was taxing on everybody and uh, more mentally even than physically. So I, I think uh, you know it started to return a little bit to normal, felt normal in the playoffs with with crowds in the stands and obviously with the vaccine and, and the success of that. Um, I think I think everybody's looking forward to a, a, a normal year. And Pete, this will be your first kind of full normal season with Vegas. Of course, when you were hired mid-season initially, then the season was shut down because of COVID, and we know how how different last year was, but. Are you excited? You know, we all see it from afar, how much support and passion there is for hockey already in that market. Are you excited to get 
probably your first full season taste of, of that passion uh, now that it will be more of a normal season in the NHL? Yeah, I've got to be the first coach in NHL history to, to coach two teams to the Western Conference Finals uh, or co- coach a team to the Western Conference Finals twice and, and never run a real training camp. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> been our last 18 months. So I'm looking forward to my first normal training camp uh, at a normal time this year in uh, October. And, um, yeah, you know, and a normal schedule and season where you can have practice uh, practices and, and not have, have to run meetings virtually, all those things, all those things that coaches want to get their hands on, you know, that we haven't had access to the last two years. Hey, Pete, well, enjoy the rest of your summer. Enjoy the no-sell service when you finally get up to the cabin in Ontario. I know it's only a few weeks, and then we've got training camp around the corner, and then it's going to be the Olympic break. It's going to be a busy schedule for you. But enjoy your break and the rest of the summer, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. appreciate it. That is Pete DeBoer, head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights and assistant coach for Team Canada at the Beijing Games. I liked how you tried to get the, do you want to give us who's going to play with Connor McDavid? Well, anybody. anybody. I mean, he's not wrong. He's he's 100% right. You're, and yeah, I mean, we can get into the line combinations at some point down the road, but he makes a good point. And again, especially anybody on the Team Canada roster, yeah, they'll be able to keep up, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is a challenge with this Team Canada roster because you think, okay, you could take the best player at every position it'd probably be a you probably have about 12 centers uh on this canadian team it's always it's always the case it's always centers playing wing for team canada and uh but there is obviously certain roles that players are going to have to play like i remember going back to the 2010 games and remember jonathan taves was young jonathan taves at the time obviously hadn't won there for or um still vying for those stanley cops but he was a fourth line center quote-unquote fourth-line center for that team, you're thinking Jonathan Taves is a fourth-line center? You think of fourth-line centers as checking centers, and yeah, he's a great two-way player, but this is Jonathan Taves, and ends up being the best, one of the best forwards, or named best forwards of that tournament. Like, it's just, it it has to be, you have to find the right players to find the right roles. Mostly that is the most talented players in Canada, but there is a fine line to try and find what fits when you do have this much talent. Well, and I think the great thing about where Team Canada is in this cycle specifically is you can take guys who are really good defensively, really good on the penalty kill without sacrificing that much talent, right? Because you look at, I mean, a player that Pete DeBoer has in Vegas, Mark Stone, maybe the best defensive forward in the league. I know he's a winger, so he doesn't get consideration for the Selkie, but he's phenomenally defensive. Also just an extremely talented player, right? You're not really sacrificing Mm -hmm. a lot of skill if you take Mark Stone. You can say the same thing about a guy like Ryan O'Reilly, Sean Couturier, Patrice Bergeron, right? These are all extremely talented two-way players, but you don't feel like you know, you're reaching for somebody who's a third liner in the NHL just to check uh, just to check a box and say you have a penalty killer. So I think the forward group, they're going to be able to assemble a group that's both extremely offensively talented and mm-hmm. has really, really high-end role player types on it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. I just want to see Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, and Sidney Crosby on the line because it's fun to watch. And they're they almost really certainly will be. I, would, I, I think <laughs> if that's one, you can probably put down in pen right now, not yes. pencil. Absolutely, especially with Bruce Cassidy on the bench. Uh, We still don't know 100% if NHL players are going to be going to the Olympics. Uh, Bill Daly telling ESPN's Greg Wyshynski, I mentioned it to Pete, but telling him that they expect to have a decision by August because, you know what, they do need to have a decision by the end of August. Jamie, because uh, the season starts, what, 
October 10th. They need to know which schedule <laughs> they're going to be playing yep. down the road. Sell tickets to the fan bases. So expect that decision soon. And we're all hoping it's the one we want to hear and one we want to see because we need to see uh, NHL players back at best on best Olympic tournament. Uh, Calgary, this is where we leave you three hours in the books. We're going to turn things over to the big show in Calgary. Enjoy the Stampeders and Lions game tonight. We'll talk to you tomorrow morning, Friday morning in Calgary, Vancouver. One more hour with you guys on 650 we're going to talk a little bit canucks we might hear from a canuck who just signed a new deal uh new def young defenseman that just signed a new deal also too we're going to replay some of that julia grosso interview if you didn't hear that because we want to put a smile on your face as you go on with the rest of your day you're listening to rental and sermon jamie dodd in for scott rental you're listening to rental and sermon one more hour of Rintoul and Sermon on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Jamie, we've had a pretty successful guest list day today. It's been pretty impressive. It's been packed. Yeah, it's, it's been, been packed. good. It's been, it makes time fly when you have a lot of great guests on the show. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, one final hour, as I said. We had a little fun earlier on in the show and a lot of listener responses to 650-650 about the what-if game. Uh, because you can play this and you can go down kind of the rabbit hole. Like, what if, I always use the, the um, example, like, what if Wayne Gretzky never got traded? Like, do the Oilers win right. 10 championships in a row? Like, does that even happen? Or at some point, would you have to break the band up anyways because you just couldn't keep them? Like, there's a lot of questions that could happen with this. So we'll get to some listener fee uh, feedback and reaction to some of these what-ifs because, again, lots of uh, lots of submissions. One I like, and I know for Seahawks fans, this is probably a little hard to, uh, to think about <laughs> because it's one of the major what-ifs in Seahawks history. What if Pete Carroll had run the ball in second and one? Yeah, I mean, they win the Super Bowl. They win back-to-back -back Super Bowls. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, Tom Brady has won fewer Super Bowls. I I'm, I adamantly believe I know there are truthers out there, and I think Bick Nazar at our station is one of them. Oh, actually, it was the right call, you know, blah, blah, blah. Scott Rintoul says that. Yeah, no, they should have ran it. They should have ran it. Well, think about it. It's second and one. If you don't get in, you got another down. Like, you have the chance yeah. to do it on the third down. So it's not really – it's like, why not do it? But the revisionist history would be – Hawks score the touchdown. They win a Super Bowl. They've won back-to-back -back Super Bowls. What does this mean for them? Are they the new Patriots dynasty of the early 2000s or even what the Patriots did after winning that Super Bowl? Tom Brady. Pats don't go on to win. Maybe Super Bowl 51 against the Hawks. They don't go on to win or make it to Super Bowl 52. Sorry, not against the Hawks, against the Falcons. Uh, they don't go to Super Bowl 52. They don't go to Super Bowl 53 against the Rams. Like, literally, there's a path that you could have that breaks up the band in New England a lot earlier than we saw it. Yeah, and I mean, who knows? Like, But the interesting thing there is... You know, we've seen from Tom Brady, it's not as if he was being carried by Bill Belichick, right? That was the accusation for a long time. Ah, system quarterback, Belichick's the best coach right. in the NFL. He's the guy. Brady, you know, you could put anyone in there and they'd have a lot of success. That You can't really make that argument anymore because the Pats fell flat on their face and Brady cruised to a Super Bowl. At the first season, they were apart from each other. So, that I mean, that's a fascinating part of it as well. If Brady goes somewhere... Yeah, it probably doesn't win as many Super Bowls just because the division is different and all of that, but... It's not, you know, if he goes somewhere different, we might still be talking about him as the GOAT. Think about this. They don't win that Super Bowl. They don't trade Jimmy Garoppolo. They move on to Jimmy Garoppolo earlier. Maybe 
maybe Tom Brady's pay, playing, you know, back where uh, in the Bay Area, he's playing back for San Francisco. San Francisco has some Super Bowls. Like, there is so many different things that could have happened that if just they had run the ball on second and one and they had yep. won that Super Bowl. Like, it's just incredible to think of where the two organizations would have gone. And, hey, Seattle's had some great success after that Super Bowl, but they never made it back. And Tom Brady went on to win three more Super Bowls after that, or at least to make a couple more appearances. Like, it's just, it's really weird to think that how uh, the future of, or the the path of Tom Brady and the path of the Seahawks could have been completely different if he had just handed the ball to Marshawn Lynch in second and one. <laughs> and I, I do like, as soon as you said, uh, what if what if they gave the ball to Lynch? We got this response in, Lynch fumbles. Well, I don't know about that. Come on. You can't, you can't say that. I think he gets it if they give him the ball. Yeah, I like this one. What if Chicago drafts Patrick Mahomes? Well, I know a lot more people would be happy in Chicago because they'd have their franchise yeah. quarterback. That's for sure. Uh, Jamie, do you have any more uh, coming in the inbox there? Uh, yeah, well, I like this one. I, I think this is, you know, it's the answer is kind of obvious, but it's still so interesting to think about, which is uh, what if Tiger Woods didn't change his swing multiple times, have multiple injuries and off course issues? And I mean, really, you can zero in on the, the first run, right? The car crash. Um, yep. or in that whole, that whole incident, uh, what it was 2010, 2009, something like that. Um, I yeah, mean, I think he, yeah. Yeah. Like if his career doesn't, and I know that was the culmination of a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, right? So you can point to all of that as well. But if, if that never happens, you know, we're still, he's still probably the greatest golfer, but just where does he rank among like all-time athletes, right? All-time individual athletes. If if his run continued for another six, seven years without those distractions, without those issues, uh, what would his legacy is already so immense? But it, it's almost even difficult to conceive of what it would have been if he had won, you know, another six or seven majors in that time. Yeah, I think the the consensus would be he would have he would hold the record. He would have passed Jack. Yes. 100%, like I, I think. You know, like where he was at that point in his career and then just kind of how it derailed. Like, yeah, he would be the all-time major winner. Jack Nicholas would be second. But now that seems to be like it's going to be a record that probably, I'm thinking, will never be touched. I mean, it's it's hard to say never because no one thought anyone could catch Roger Federer and look what Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic are doing. Like, it's hard to say you're never going to get there, but I don't think it's going to probably happen, at least, Jamie, until we are in – the elder years of our lifetime, maybe in like our seventies or something like that. Yes. Um, this is from Adam, the former bath guy. And this one's intriguing because it did totally change the direction of the NHL and made it Gary Bettman's NHL that we know today. What if there was no NHL lockout leading to the hard salary cap? Absolutely. Yeah. That is a huge one. Yeah. That's a fascinating one. That's one that I was thinking of when we were coming up with this exercise as well, because just think about how much, of our daily conversations about the NHL, about the Canucks, about whatever team are centered around the salary cap, right? Yeah. Like, just think about the conversation in Vancouver over the last, you know, seven years, seven plus years since Jim Bang is here. How much of it as a percentage has been about the salary cap? Like 80%, right? Yes. We, we do still have the conversations, you know, when it's draft time and okay, which go, who, who should this player be playing with? But the salary cap really dictates everything about how we talk about hockey, how we see the game now. So that's the kind of thing. I mean, I, I personally, just philosophically, I don't really like salary caps. I think players should be free to make the money that the owners want to pay them. If the owners yep. keep getting into bad spots because they're overpaying guys, that's their problem. Be smarter with your money. You really shouldn't punish the players for that. Now, the flip side of it is 
because they have kind of a partnership, both sides are invested in growing the revenue and growing the game. And we've seen the flip side in Major League Baseball where the owners are more concerned with just clawing back money from the players as opposed to growing the game. So you can make the argument that overall it's the better economic system for the NHL. But that's a fascinating one because literally everything about how we approach the league would be different Mm -hmm. without a salary cap. Yeah, I mean, do you see the Detroit Red Wings go on to win more and more, right. you know, Stanley Cups? Do the Pittsburgh Penguins without a, Stanley Cup or without a salary cap, how many do they win in their uh, prime with Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin? Because we saw the fact they were able to win back-to-back in a salary cap era. If there wasn't one, what could they have done? And, I mean, you talk about the fact, even the Canucks, what we talk about in their daily lives, like how much was the entire conversation around the Stanley Cup winning Tampa Bay Lightning yep. about salary yep. cap and how they were able to, I don't want to say circumvent it, but they were able to have the luxury to manipulate it <laughs> to their benefit, or at least they had the ability to put $18 million extra in the playoffs because they couldn't do it in the regular season. Like there's so much conversation about what this means. And Hey, it's not going away either because of the fact we are going to have a flat cap, so to speak, moving forward. Yeah. There might be some incremental increases, but because of COVID and because of the flat cap, things are not going to change until probably 2025, 2026. If you're going to read the predictions from Frank Saravalli. So it's always going to be part of our conversation when talking about any NHL franchise moving forward. Jamie, is there, is there anything that, uh, there's one that I did see that talked about <laughs> a, a Canuck that we just signed. Or not we, sorry, we just signed. The team Jim just Benning. signed. Yeah, the, the re-signed. Yeah. Man, me using we with the Vancouver Canucks. Oof, that's a wow. That's a faux. That's a faux pas. How long have you been in Vancouver? It's finally <laughs> right? happening. The conversion is happening. <laughs> 2012, my friend. 2012. There you go. Uh, the Canucks did re-sign Ole Levy, and that's been a bit of a talking point because he signed for less than what his arbitration would be in his, um, in his, um, in his case there. He signed for the league minimum. But revisionist history, and this is one of the most fun ones because you could do it with almost anybody in the 2016 draft because there's so many that went a lot further down uh, that you could revisit. But what if the Canucks took Matthew Kachuk in the 2016 right, and that draft? Was- that's one that immediately came to mind for me um, because, you know, first of all, I mean, earlier on, right, we're, we're on in Calgary and Vancouver. So it, it involves both markets, but it's such a fascinating one. The, the what ifs that I love the most are sometimes are where, okay, the immediate outcome, right, is you look at that draft and you take Ole Levy one spot for Matthew Kachuk and you think, man, we absolutely blew that. And that's true. That's a bad pick, right? Like objectively, they made mm-hmm. the wrong pick. They selected the worst player. If you're grading the draft, your grade would be a hundred times better if you took Matthew Kachuk. We all know that he was productive right, right away. He's been a star level player, not necessarily a franchise cornerstone type of player, but a really, really good NHL player. Ole Levy still struggling to establish himself just as an NHL player, really. So obviously it's, you say, oh man, how could they not have taken Matthew Kachuk? But it's so fascinating because then you start to play it out and okay, if Matthew Kachuk makes the NHL just like he did in Calgary in his first year after the draft, well, all of a sudden does that change thing for the Canucks to where the lottery balls are just a little bit different and they're not in position to draft Elias Patterson, right? And does that Mm -hmm. change things the next year where they're not in position to draft Quinn Hughes? So it's not a defense of the pick. It was a bad pick. Like, let's be on, let's be upfront about that. It was objectively the wrong pick and a bad pick, but it's so fascinating because as much as you want to, you know, wave a magic wand and reverse it, 
the the ripple effect of that is all of a sudden, yeah. well, you might not have two even better players in Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. Yeah, you could argue the fact that Matthew Kachuk makes you better in the immediacy in his rookie season. So, one, are you even a lottery team? Two, where would the franchise be right now if you were a little bit better back in 2016? Jamie, like, is the team further down the road even now than they are because you have that player and he makes the team better? So there's just better players around him in general, free agency, all those kind of things. Like... You look at him in Calgary, and I understand what's going on with Calgary, but you put him on this Canucks roster, what could that have meant from 2016 on? It's a, it's a fascinating discussion to have. I mean, it's I get it. It's all what-ifs and hypotheticals, and I think if you were to ask Canucks fans right now, they'd rather have the duo of Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson over Matthew Kachuk. I think I'm okay in saying that, that you'd rather have those two, but you put Matthew Kachuk on this team, maybe you're further ahead than you are right now. I don't know. <laughs> and this is interesting as well. This texture says, actually it goes back, to the 2014 NHL draft had they selected Ehlers yeah. rather than Vertanen, then they would have been more inclined to take Matthew Kachuk in 2016. And I guess the Texas point there is maybe they thought Jake Vertanen kind of duplicated some of what uh, Matthew Kachuk brings. We know now that is obviously not the case. I mean, I will say, I, I, I will put my hand up. Like, look, when I get things wrong, I put my hand up and, and admit that I got them yes. wrong. This is one where I got it right. Uh, in 2014, I was saying, how are we not taking Nick Ehlers or William Nylander? Why are they taking Jake Vertanen? And that one panned out. I was 100% correct about that. But yes, that is also a fascinating what if. Couldn't they also have David Pasternak instead of Jared McCann? Yep, absolutely. There's that. Well, you know, (laughs) hindsight. 2020, Jamie, hindsight 2020. Well, one player they did take, it wasn't Matthew Kachuk. They took Oldie Ulevi. He was on the People's Show Yesterday afternoon, I believe, with Sat and uh, the boys, uh, Dan and Randeep. He talked about the fact that, yes, this is the contract that he took. He took less money because, Jamie, as we've discussed, less money means more likelihood that he can get into this lineup and play some NHL games because the Vancouver Canucks are up against the salary cap. So hopefully he can showcase himself. But he did talk about the fact that when he does get into NHL games, he wants to have a lot more confidence on the ice. It's huge to be able to be healthy, and I think the last summer obviously was a little longer with the whole uh, corona situation. And I knew that it worked out well for me, and I had a good season. And now, second straight summer, I've been healthy, and I'm really happy how the things been going. And just uh, waiting to see and start the training camp. <laughs> Confidence is a huge, huge thing, Jamie. Also, health with Oli Ulevi. Like, if he comes into camp and he's confident and has health, like we have seen. I don't know what Travis Green's opinion is on Oli Ulevi. Obviously, up until now, didn't have a ton of faith with him. Just seeing how he, how he used him when he did have him in the lineup. Not yep. a lot of hard matchups, pretty sheltered minutes for a third-line defenseman. But, you know, you have a little confidence. You show the you show the coaching staff what you can do. Travis Green has showed that he is willing to give some young players some um, – give them the playing time if they earn it in training camp and preseason games. But I do wonder if Travis Green's mind's a little made up on Ole Levy too. Well, it's going to be an uphill battle, right? Because you just look at how the left side sets up, and we know yeah. Quinn Hughes and Oliver ekman Larson are locked in as the top two left side defensemen on the first and second pairing. You know, order that however you want. They're going to eat the big minutes on the left side. 
And then the battle for the third spot is going to be pretty intense, right? Jack Rathbone impressed a lot of people, myself included, when he came up at the end of last season. I think he's got the kind of inside track early, at least before training camp starts, as we st- as we sit here and talk in August. He'd be my pick to be the third uh, left side defenseman on opening night. But Brad Hunt as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, that this is a guy with a ton of NHL experience. He's been productive in the NHL. He's going to come. He, and, and we've heard from him and how fired up he is to be playing here in his home province, he's going to make a heck of a run at it. And, you know, Brad Hunt, I could see being a guy who maybe sticks around on the roster as a seventh defenseman, but that makes it all the more difficult for Ole Levy to make the opening night roster. So it's going to be really, really difficult for him just to get on the ice and to, uh, unless and until there are injuries, which, you know, with the Canucks defense, there's usually going to be. But it's it, there's no clear <laughs> path where you say, oh, yeah, that's the spot where Ole Levy's going to line up on opening night, right? It, this could be a season where he gets a lot of time in Abbotsford. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one-way contract would require waivers, but as we've discussed before, I think it could be attractive to other teams that just want to maybe a fresh body on the blue line, cheap. He can fit under the salary cap at the same time, too. I think probably if you're sending him down to Abbotsford, you think he can clear waivers. He also talked about the fact that um, what Travis and Jim have told him that they want from him this season. Uh, it's those same things. Uh, being stronger, faster. I think uh, we are all in pretty much on the same page with the stuff that I need to work on and how I can help the team more. And uh, I think uh, my role is more overall now. I think when I was younger, it was more just offensive skills. And obviously, when you play in NHL, you got to be able to defend, especially if you want to win win games and win championships. So all the demons, they need to be able to defend also. So that that's going to help you. Yes, you're going to have to defend if you're going to play in the NHL. We do know that's one thing, uh, Jamie, that they do want from him. I, I found it also interesting. Did you hear his comments as well and the fact that he's looking forward to playing in the NHL in front of fans? He's not yes. played a single game in front of fans because it's been that, in the co- both COVID seasons. That must be surreal, right? To, you know, you think about the hype and the hoopla for your first NHL game. And to have it happen in an empty arena with all the weirdness surrounding that, that, that must be a very, very strange feeling. So I respect that. That makes a lot of sense that he's sitting here thinking, oh, man, I get to actually have some, some cheering fans along <laughs> this time. That would be incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know how, how hard it is to mentally get yourself up to play in a game when – and if it's, say, I don't know, third game in four nights or third game in five nights, whatever the case is, you're a little – long in the tooth and tired and it's like you don't have the fans in the building trying to pump you up or at least helping you out you have to do it all internally and think about that for a young kid who's never played in front of fans in the NHL and then you throw him into an empty arena and he's trying to hype himself up and get up for games so I can only imagine how difficult these last couple of seasons have been for him and you know what in in fairness Ole Levy's career as a Vancouver Canucks since being drafted because of the expectations and then then the injuries on top of it the hip issues and then he was playing really well down in um, Utica at the time and I believe he was he was going to be called up to the finish or was he past his finish team either way it doesn't really matter but he broke his ankle and it gets derailed again and I remember seeing him here in Vancouver at the rink and he's you know in crutches and a cast and it's just like man every time he seemed to get a little bit of traction something just derailed the season they was having so honestly like just not just because he's a top pick for the Vancouver Canucks but I just hope for the kid that he does succeed oh absolutely that he's able to get his career on track you know it's it's tough because I've often been very pessimistic about Ole Levy's future with the Canucks I, I'm very much in the uh I'll believe it when I see it 
state yeah. of mind, right? Which is, you know, Fair before enough. you go expecting him to fill big minutes on the blue line, like he's got to do, he's got to check a lot of other boxes before that, right? Staying healthy, showing that he can earn the trust of the, of the coaching staff, all of those things. So yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, but you're right as a human story. I mean, he's had a really, really tough go at it. <laughs> Just being able to play a full season somewhere healthy in a normal environment, I think will be huge for him. Uh, just want to address this as well. I don't, we don't need to get fully into this, Jamie, because you and I have given our opinions off the top of the show and we talked about it a ton yesterday, but Elias Pettersson's comments, Patrick Johnson with the province did go and speak with Jim Benning to try and get his reaction, uh, (laughs) from what Pettersson said. And basically Benning said, well, all players want to win. So there's that. And I think that was our takeaway. Like, what do you want? him to say he wants to win he wants to win with the Canucks and he says my takeaway is that he's excited about the moves that we made this summer and he's excited about the season and basically the agent his agent um CEA Sports Pat Prasson and JP Barry they said the same thing like it's the guy wants to win hockey games come on and why is that a bad thing yeah it's it's not it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone it shouldn't be a shock to anyone it shouldn't be upsetting to anyone it's an extremely competitive and we've always known that about Elias Patterson that he's competitive right that that's been well known and well publicized that he's a fiery competitive guy especially when it comes to hockey so of course of course he wants to play for a winner and of course the Canucks know that and of course they know that if they want him to be happy here they're gonna have to ice a competitive team Jim Benning also did say that uh, he did speak with Travis Green yesterday, so I guess that would have been um, Tuesday. His wrist is feeling good. That should have Canucks fans pretty happy. Uh, He's having a good summer. He's met Oliver Ekman Larson a few times, and they've got a good relationship. OEL should be a good leader for him and for the future. When his contract is up, he says he wants to see where it's at. If we've been winning, he'll want to stay. So uh, just another good news that we've seen it from Instagram. I don't know if you follow him on Instagram, Jamie, if you have an Instagram account. I don't have an Instagram account, so no, I Oh, really? You're I know. You're smart. My, you're, you're, my life is not interesting enough to have an Instagram account. <laughs> I, I, I like it because I like looking at pictures. I'm pretty simple that way. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't need Facebook because it just gets to muddle no. down with everything. You know, I go on Facebook just to basically get recipes. That's what I use my there Facebook for. There you go. There you go. But Instagram, I just like to look at pictures of my friends and their kids. That's basically all I like to do. But I do follow Elias Pettersson. He's been having a good summer. He's been training. He just posted some pictures of training again. So uh, I think the, probably the best news is, one, he wants to win his Vancouver Canuck, and two, yep. the wrist is feeling better because of all the moves that Jim Benny made this offseason. I will argue that Elias Pettersson, healthy back in the lineup, is the biggest move they could get to and, this. And by the way, just just before we move on, you know, one of the yep. things that Ufe Bodin said on the morning show with Halford and Bruff when he was on this morning, he's the guy who did the interview in Sweden with Elias Pettersson, is, you know, one of the things that came across in the interview was that, uh, Pedersen's really fired up about the moves the Canucks made this offseason, right? Yes. So there, it's not as if he was he was he was he went into this interview and was like, "I'm going to trash the Canucks for the direction this franchise is headed." Like he said, "Hey, I want to be on a winning team," but he also said, "And I really like these moves we've made." So I think we may, if people are getting all doom and gloom about it, they're maybe getting a little a little bit ahead of themselves. I do think it's sometimes it's just the <laughs> it's just our innate. Um, pessimism think yes that yeah. it's okay he says this so obviously doesn't want to be here and he's yeah. been not going to be here after his next contract now just take it for what it is he wants to win and he wants to win in vancouver should also note that guillaume brisebois signed a contract with the vancouver canucks today jamie i believe it's a one-year deal i didn't look at the dollar figures yeah on one year one. two-way deal so yeah you know, so depth in abbotsford up, yeah to be in abbotsford yeah 
yeah, it's uh, if Gambrose Breezeball is not going to crack an NHL roster now, he's probably not going to. Nope. So just gives gives him a little insurance down in Abbotsford, some depth down there. Uh, we're gonna we're up against the break. We're gonna take a quick break, and then on the other side, uh, Jamie, you and I were completely impressed with Julia Grosso and the interview that we had with her. So we're gonna play you a snippet. If you missed it, you want to tune into this honestly because it's gonna make you smile. It's gonna make the rest of your day better. That is next on Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. One final segment in Rintoul and Sermon. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul on this Thursday afternoon. A pretty warm afternoon, Jamie. I just turned my air conditioner on for the first time. Uh, It's a little far away. I can't really sit right in front of it because it's a little loud. But in about half an hour's time when we're done this show, um, I'm going to be sitting right in front of it for the rest of the day. Yeah, (laughs) I have a fan set up right next to the table where I'm doing it. It's it's way yeah. too loud to have on during the show. So as soon as we go to break, I pop the fan on to high <laughs> setting and just kind of sit there and enjoy it and get get cooled down a little bit. And yeah. then, yeah, count down the minutes until I can turn the fan on again. For whatever reason, maybe it's because we're quote unquote on when we're doing the show. But as soon as the mic turns on, like I just get hot in general like i yeah. just feel like the this sounds maybe too much information but the sweat <laughs> running down my back you know and so when yeah. you add the heat on top of it it's just like oh it's just it's just uh, miserable maybe i should just i went back to the studio a couple times over the last uh, two weeks maybe i'll is it, a, is it ac do. in there it's not it's nice i, I honestly nice. can't even remember it's been feeling so pretty good guys been in. What's, pretty good. what's the temperature situation it's good balak well we're in like a bunker right if you guys remember there's no windows That's true. That's there's true. nothing so it's nice and cool i i'm actually shorts and i actually have a thin a thin hoodie on because i'm so what? cold you guys what? Yeah, wow. I, I cannot relate to what you're going through right now I wow say. a hoodie in a this thin, weather incredible thin hoodie okay That's, okay uh, I mean, I'm not jealous because I don't want to be wearing a hoodie right now, but I'm jealous of the fact that it's cool enough that maybe I'd think about putting that's a the thing. hoodie you on. Want to, you want to be cold enough such that you have to wear a hoodie. You know what right? I mean? Like that That's what was so great about the weekend. It's like, oh, my goodness. I, I, I need to pull the blanket up a little bit when I'm sleeping. Like, it oh. felt incredible. Yeah, well, enjoy it. Well, we can't enjoy that because we're nope, going to be in a bit of bit of a heat wave for the next uh, couple of weeks. But I guess I guess we should just enjoy it until the rain comes in October. So we'll take it while it lasts, I guess, Jamie. Uh, earlier in the show, earlier in this show, we had on Olympic gold medalist Julia Grosso, Vancouver's very own, and we're going to call her our very own because we're very proud of her. And she won Olympic gold for Canada's women's soccer team. And I say she won gold because literally she did win gold, Jamie. She was the one who was to scored that winning goal in the penalty kicks that captured gold for Canada. So we talked to her about that and much more. And here's a portion of the interview that we did with her early on. Um, We started off by asking her, Jamie, if it had sunk in yet that we introduced her as Julia Grosso, Olympic gold medalist. I think it's hitting me more now, but I (laughs) I was like, it still had to sink in with me. But I definitely think coming back to Canada, it hit me a lot more for sure. Now, I understand that when you first got back to Canada, I think it was your plan to always come to Vancouver, but maybe your parents didn't know that you were coming? Yeah, so I just, because I always, like, I never surprised them, and it's, like, hard to surprise my dad because he's, like, very smart. Like, he just knows, like, I just can't lie very well. And um, so I just didn't tell them. I only told my sister, so she picked me up. And, yeah, so I just tried to keep it very low-key. And my dad kind of knew, but I tried my best. (laughs) 
What was the overall experience like in Tokyo? We had Evan Dumphy on yesterday who won bronze medal for our country in speed walking. We talked about, you know, kind of what the protocols were like, but the overall experience, like you guys started playing prior to the Olympics actually officially getting underway. You were there for the entire duration of these games. What was it like being in a COVID Olympics? Um, I feel like, well, definitely probably wasn't like the full experience of like having fans there and like being able to like, because it was pretty strict. Like when we went to hotels, like we weren't allowed to really go outside and like stuff like that. But it was, it was, I mean, I kind of liked it at the same time because you're just very focused on what you went there to do. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a little bit challenging with the whole COVID restrictions, but we made it work and we made the best out of it, which is awesome because my team is amazing and we all like have such a great time together. So it was really fun. Well, as you said, it you know it made it maybe it made it easier a little bit to focus with your team on, on the task at hand. And you talk about the chemistry there. Did did that make it easier overall to deal with all the challenges you were faced with in, in Tokyo because of COVID? To have that bond with your teammates going through it with you at the same time. Um, I feel like well, regardless of COVID, like this team it has a very special like bond. Um, but yeah, like I feel like we would like play games and like would all like we had like a mario 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 kart yeah we had like a tournament one night like it was just like <laughs> very very fun like all together but yeah i feel like with covid like we got we like spent a lot like a lot of time together but regardless of covid or not we like still spent a lot of time together like we just like always find something really fun to do regardless so <laughs> okay so we're gonna get to the gold medal game but i gotta ask i gotta follow up who who won the mario kart tournament for the canadian women's National um team? oh my gosh it was i oh my god i i wasn't there in the finals because i yeah i was not in that but <laughs> i believe it was i i can't um i want to say it was kadisha okay but like i i don't want them to get mad at me if i said that wrong but i'm not 100 percent sure it was either kadisha or vanessa but i'm pretty sure it was kadisha all right. Well, I appreciate the update. That's fantastic. Okay, yeah. so let's get let's get to the gold medal game. Um, you you score the winning penalty kick. So just as you're stepping up to take the kick, do you do you even remember what's going through your head in that moment? Um, I just remember like right now when I think about it, I'm like, oh, that's pretty nerve wracking. Like to think about, you know. But I'm like, when I was like walking up, like all my nerves, I just went away. Like when you're like in the moment, it's hard to explain. You don't feel like the nerves as much as if like, for example, I'm thinking about it right now. I'm like, Oh wow, that'd be pretty, like I'd be nervous. Right. But in the moment I went up to the ball and I was just like, this is just like practice. Like, cause in practice, like you, you usually score those or like you have a lot of confidence cause no one's watching kind of thing. So I just thought about that. I was like, pretend you're at practice and you're shooting. Cause I knew that was the biggest game of my life, but I try not to think about that cause then I would be nervous. So I just, I remember being like, no, I honestly didn't think of anything. I just thought of like, like hit it hard, like in the corner kind of thing. Well, you definitely did that. You hit it hard. Mm -hmm. it takes a little deflection off the keeper, but it goes in. That's, that's the important thing. So yeah, okay, that's I, what I you were thinking. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. But that, that's what you're thinking before. I mean, what's, what's the immediate reaction after, right? You've just scored the winning penalty kick to win gold for your country. What are those immediate moments after like for you? Um, I, well, I, the first thing I thought of was like, I saw the deflection and I was like, oh my gosh. And like, and then it went in and I was like, oh, wow, did that go in? Like, cause I first, I saw like a little hand on it. So I was like, oh gosh. But after that, I like remember turning around and seeing my teammates. And at first, like it didn't hit me. I was like, wait, like we, cause I knew like if I scored that we would have won, like, cause that's what, 
like, because with the scores, like, back and forth. But I just didn't believe it. I was like, oh, wow, like, we just won. Like, it just didn't hit me until my teammates came. And, like, we had, like, a dog pile on top, and I couldn't breathe. <laughs> but it was it was really fun, though. Like, I, it was just, like, a moment, like, I would, I will honestly never forget. It was, like, the best feeling in the whole world, for sure. In conversation, in conversation, rather, with Julia Grosso, gold medalist of Team Canada's women's soccer team, Julia, what is it like going through a shootout in a game where you know gold medal is on the is on the line? Because we kind of we saw how it played out, but do you get is there a little bit of a letdown if a teammate may, misses a penalty shot, or is it kind of okay just on to the next one? Like what what is the, the mindset when you're watching this? Yeah. Um, well, for like my whole team, it's like no one like if you it's not like if you miss like it's on to the next for sure. Like and we have your back right away. Like no one gets mad about it. Like it's on to the next. We have each other's backs. We're a very united team. Like everyone understands that like, everyone misses a, a penalty. Like no one gets upset about it. And it's like it's OK. Like next next pass, next one. Like we don't dwell on the mm-hmm. past. It's like, hey, we just focus on the next one, um, which is very nice to have because then you don't feel like all the pressure on you. Like, you know, your teammates have your back. So I would just say like, yeah, that everyone has each other's backs and it's always on to the next shot and to be supportive on from there on out. Did you know that you were going to be the sixth kicker if it had to go past the, the five original ones? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, okay. Me. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. I wasn't sure how that, how that works. If you kind of have a next in line, like 10 kickers set up by yeah. uh, Bev Priestman. So, okay, cool. So you did know that you were going to be the one stepping up there. Did you have a little, I, I know you talk about, okay, it's on to the next one. If it's your team, when Sweden was to step up and they had a chance to win with their final kicker and it was their captain and she hit it over the net. Was there a bit of a, oh, okay, now it's on, now it's on to us. We still have a chance for this because it, you know, it could have gone the other way if she had made that. Was it just a whew, sense of relief? Yeah, it was because I know like Seger, it was, that was the one that shot on Sweden. She's an amazing player. I believe she's their captain and she's very good. And so I was like, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, okay, like, because I knew if she scored that, they would have won. Um, but there, it was definitely a, a side relief. I was like, oh, like, it was just, cra- it was a crazy feeling because it was just like the last one. Like, if they scored that, they would have won, you know? So I was like, mm-hmm. and like, I just know the amazing player she is. And like, um, and so I was just like, it was just a relief for sure. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, like, it went over the net. I was like, wow. And then I knew right away, like, but when she, when she missed that, like I was excited at first, but I just knew like, I was like, okay, I'm next like focus. So I didn't really like mm-hmm. think about it too much, you know, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I know you're trying to stay in the moment when you're waiting for your turn or you're waiting for uh, your, your next teammate to take a kick. But I mean, were you as impressed with Stephanie Laba in, in goal as the rest oh, of us were watching We yes. I know we couldn't believe it. She's, she is amazing. Like she saves so many shots. Like, not PK, like she did, she, like she's a one of a kind. Like I tell you, like she is so good that, like, there's shots at practice that I take that she just saves, and I'm like, how did you save? Like, <laughs> she's just amazing, and like, yeah, like she, she definitely helped us a lot. Um, and yeah, like a lot of credit goes to her for sure. Well, and the other thing that was so impressive and really struck me was you could just tell her attitude. I mean, it seemed like she was just having fun at practice. She had a big smile no, on her face. Yeah, she, she seemed had... as, as loose as possible. That that must be inspiring for the rest of the team to see, too. Yeah. she Watching her makes me feel confident before shooting because she has all the confidence during that PK shootout. And so I remember, like, walking, and I kind of looked at her for a second, and she just, like, had a bit of a smile on her face. Like, she just had that confidence, which gave me confidence. And so – 
uh, yeah, she's amazing. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the manager of the team, Bev Priestman. You know, she was very upfront publicly going into the tournament about, hey, look, our goal here is to change the color of the medal. We've won bronze. We want to at least change it to silver, if not gold, which, of course, you eventually do. Behind closed doors, what what was her message to the squad, you know, leading up to the tournament and also in the early stages of the tournament? Yeah, um, I think it was the most important thing was just to, like, kind of just keep our team, like, very united and, like, because team connection is, like, a very big thing for us. And um, uh, and we all just, like, in meetings, like, had it very clear, like, we would speak about it, like, to change the color of the medal. And, like, we knew, like, we didn't even want silver. Like, we wanted to go for gold. Like, we wanted we wanted to win the whole thing and, like, because the last two years, we not two years, sorry, but like the last two Olympics, we've had bronze medals, and so we we all like had it very crystal clear in our head, like we're gonna go and like get gold, like that was all our plan, like we were all on the same page in meetings and everything, like we we all had it very clear in our heads, and she did a very good job, just like helping us just stay connected and just stay like on task, like what we're there for, and and yeah, she helped a lot, so that's great. What makes her such a good coach but specifically for this your group of girls um I just think like just like we're allowed to just play free like we just like we can all bring our individual individual identities and don't have to really worry about like like just you don't really have to worry about like doing this this and that like too much structure mm-hmm. too like you know like you play like like everyone on this team brings something unique and she wants you to bring that every single day and that's what I love it's just I know like what I can bring every single day. And like, she wants me to bring that. And it's like, I don't have to like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't like, Mm -hmm. she just lets us play like how we want to, like how we play in our identity. And, um, and obviously she like, we have like a structure and all of that, but she lets us play how we want, like our creativity and all that. She Mm -hmm. wants us to bring that, which I love so much about her for sure. I got to ask you about Christine Sinclair because she found yeah. you after you guys had won and the camera did catch the moment. We all saw it here back in Canada. You were 11 years old back when Christine Sinclair scored a hat trick in that heartbreaking loss to the U.S. in the London Games. But what was that moment like knowing that you had won gold with Christine Sinclair? Yeah. Oh, wow. It was like that moment right there, I think, was like, just so special to me just knowing because like I've watched her ever since I started playing soccer she's been my like inspiration and and she's like just paved the way for so many athletes in the world and she definitely and she definitely paved the way for us and um and I appreciate her so much for that so I remember when I got to hug her I was just thought in my head I was like wow like is this even real right now because I remember watching her in Brazil and I remember watching her in London and scoring those three goals and it's just so crystal clear in my head that she did all those amazing things and then just to celebrate like the gold with her was like a surreal feeling just knowing like you know like I've I've watched her growing up I've like she's been such an inspiration to so many people around the world and that now I like get to celebrate a gold with her was just like a moment I'll never forget and like she's just such a hard worker and just an amazing teammate so just to be there beside her was just such an honor for sure. That's Julia Grosso, gold medalist for Team Canada's women's soccer team. You can hear that entire interview. Uh, You can find it on sportsnet650.ca and on our Twitter account at sportsnet650. I've retweeted it, so have you, Jamie. So you can find it on our Twitter accounts as well, at Jamie Dodd and at Karen underscore Sermon. Karen with an E, Sermon with a U and an A. Put a smile on my face. It's, uh, (laughs) she made my day better, honestly. Oh, yeah. 100%. 100% 100%. 100% she did. She was just like so much enthusiasm, so much pass, passion and the joy. And just like you could tell she had a lot of fun, right? It, it was 
you know, obviously it's incredibly intense and high pressure environment, but mm -hmm. that's what I really appreciated is that she was having fun the whole time over there. You could tell. Well, and she really made a point of saying this is a special group and you know, it takes a lot of individuals to, to gel as a group to get to a gold medal. We understand that, but there's always a lot of different personalities. So for that group to be as close as she said it was, and I think it probably comes from their leader, Christine Sinclair. And when you listen to these, these individuals speak, like they're very humble, they're very gracious. And I think that comes from Christine as well, because they learned from her and that's exactly yep. who she is when you hear her talk. So the, the good thing is as well, is like, I understand that Christine Sinclair is in the twilight of her career and whether we see her in Paris or not, we don't know, but the core of this group is in their early 20s, if not in their teens. So, you know, the the heights that this group can go to and by adding different players as well coming up through the system, the Canadian women's soccer system, like it's it's really exciting to think what the future can hold for these girls. Yeah, the future is bright, right? And I mean, Jordan Heidema, who's I think a lot of people regard as one of the most exciting kind of prospects for this team, didn't even play a starring role at this event, right? Yeah. And she still has such a bright future ahead of her. And Julia Grosso has such a bright future ahead of her as only tw at only 20 years old. So there's a lot of talent coming in the pipeline as well. Hey, Greg, let's get quickly to notes and quotes. Who's in the top six? Getting pucks out, getting pucks deep. Who's in the crease? Really none of your business. And who's in the press box? It's time for notes and quotes. I still laugh every time I hear that clip of uh, Daryl Sutter. It's none of your business. Uh, Jamie, we mentioned earlier, Guillaume Brisebois signing that one-year two-way deal. Also, Abbotsford Canucks general manager Ryan Johnson announced that the club has signed... Oh, I don't want to screw up this name. Jared Luksevichis? Luksevichis? Is that how you All say right. it? Am I... Am I, gonna... I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I'm, so, I'm sorry if, if he was listening. I apologize. It's a one-year AHL contract. Uh, he's from Squamish. He played for Powell River in the BCHL. And as someone pointed out on Twitter, it reunites him with Nick Batan, teammates on the North Shore Winter Club Bantam team that won a provincial championship. So, again, just some depth in the Abbotsford, um, the Abbotsford Farm team. Big one, though is with the Winnipeg Jets. They've signed Andrew Kopp to a one-year $3.65 million deal. Jamie, uh, it makes them cap compliant, as Frank Saravelli says. So two-thirds of that potent third line for the Winnipeg Jets is back together. Yeah, it's um, he, he's a big part of that the identity of that team, of that third line. Obviously, they lose Mason Appleton to Seattle, so they won't be reuniting it completely. But... They avoid, again, this is another situation, right, where they're avoiding an arbitration hearing, yes. which is, is almost always what happens when, when teams have that deadline. They ended up getting, they end up getting a deal uh, done pretty quickly. So no surprise here. One year, he'll have a chance to possibly improve his standing around the league even a little bit more and, and go for a bigger deal next season. Still waiting on Jason Dickinson's uh, contract to be announced by the Vancouver Canucks, assuming that they want to avoid arbitration, Jamie. Uh, National Bank Open, third round action we saw earlier today. Unfortunately for Vancouver's Rebecca Marino, her run has come to an end. She lost to the top seed, Arena Sabalenka, 6-1, just, just wasn't meant to be, but you can't talk about it. It's still the feel-good story of this entire tournament. Oh. The fact that 220-something in the world and she makes it to the third round of this tournament. Her home tournament as well. It's like I nothing but praise for her and what she's been able to do. No, without question, a fantastic result, fantastic story for Rebecca Marino. And no, she enjoys all of the all of the kudos and all of the praise in the world for it. 
Jamie, you and I, because we're going to be standing in, staying inside in front of our fans and air conditioners uh, for the rest <laughs> of the day, 4 o'clock, or at least not before 4 o'clock, uh, Bianca Andreescu is up first on center court for the night session. She's the number two seed. She's playing Anz Jabour from Tunisia, who is the 13th seed. So it will be a battle. I would suggest that it's probably going to go three sets if I'm going to bet on this. Yes, yes, probably. <laughs> probably will. Bianca. And again, I have no problem with that as long as she comes out. <laughs> On the right side, but it, it sets up a pretty nice uh, sporting evening on TV, right? Because you've got Bianca yeah. Andreescu, and then you've got the Field of Dreams game, which we're gonna we'll, we'll chat about quickly. And uh, the uh, one of the big events, I think, is Shohei Otani on the mound versus Vladdy Guerrero Jr. and the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm looking forward to that one a lot too. Okay, I have a quick question yesterday because Shohei Otani does not usually play or bat before a start when he pitches. And I looked at the bad. I looked at the projected uh, roster for the Angels yesterday, and he was not on it. And he ends up he ends up playing. I d- I don't know what happened. Do you know what happened? Like I, I don't, don't want to be look. I, I don't want to be said like a fool over here. No, I I don't <laughs> know. I mean, I guess I guess they figured. Listen, we need we need Shohei in the lineup. He hit a home run. wasn't enough. The Jays were way better. But I don't yeah. know. I guess they, maybe they're just figuring they can squeeze a little more out of him even. Yeah, it was really, I was like, damn it, I said on air, I checked, I made sure that he was not in the batting order, and then we go back and look at the box, or I'm like, what? Uh, I'm going to look like an idiot, but no, I was, I don't know, I could just be an idiot, it could be, that could be the case. Uh, also, too, if you don't want to watch that, you can watch a little football, BC Lions take on the Calgary Stampeders, 6.30 kickoff time, neither of these teams wants to go 0-2, Jamie, we've talked to the talked in length about it on the show Nathan Rourke likely making his first scheduled start <laughs> as a BC yes, Lions starter yes. I, I think this is where my eyes will be turned after Bianca's match and I'll put a little baseball on as well because Shohei versus Vladdy I, or at least Shohei versus Springer and Vladdy and Tasker Hernandez will be very entertaining but definitely this the BC Lions don't want to be coming back 0-2 with their home opener next week it's just it's for a team that still has the taste of 2019 in its mouth and uh, with a fan base that you want to get fans in the stands finally back at games in BC. I think one and one sounds a lot better for them. Yeah, it would. It would sound much better. Get the monkey off your back early, right? Just so you don't have to even entertain questions. You know, yes. are you worried about being down 0-2 in a, in, in a short season, right? Like, how important is this game against Edmonton then? You know, you haven't won in almost two years. Is that weighing on you? Like, avoid all of those questions, all of those distractions, and get the win ASAP. Just win, baby. Just win. Uh, Field of Dreams, if you want to watch from the cornfields in Iowa. That game's at uh, 4 o'clock on Fox, Yankees, and White Sox. I'm going to tune in just to see what the spectacle's all about. And if you want, I'm sure you can find these NFL preseason games, Washington at New England and Pittsburgh at Philadelphia. Jamie, another one in the books. Yeah. One more to go. One more One more this week. And then you're on vacation. You're counting down. It's oh, like yes. every <laughs> every week somebody is counting down to vacation on this show, basically. And you get to, and you get to work on Monday, so yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's all good. You know what? It's uh, I promise not to do a mailed in Friday, but you know what? Don't <laughs> we'll hey, don't what... don't make promises you can't keep. All right. <laughs> there might be a lot of uh, so. What are you most excited about for yes, the indeed. upcoming season? Type of questions yeah. tomorrow on our show. Uh, big ups to Greg Ballack. 
uh, in the air-conditioned Mission Control, back for us at the 650 Studios. Raja Shurgirl, excellent producing show today. We had a great program, great guests. We'll be back tomorrow with you. Uh, again, once again, Jamie Dodd filling in for Scott Rintu. As always, I appreciate it. Up next is Bick and the Boss. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul on Sportsnet 650.